0: Amen. Thank you, Jacob. Welcome. It's good to be with you today. I'm Kurt Parker. It's good to be back t- together to study. Students, welcome back. Uh, travelers, welcome back. Glad to have you, and I hope your time away was a blessing to you. You were encouraged and, and strengthened. We, uh, I'm very grateful to Daniel Gillette for filling the pulpit in two, uh, two weeks back-to-back, back, a very powerful message series from Isaiah 6. Who will go for me? Here am I. Send me. A, remi- a very uh, important reminder of our our duties and the things that we're to do. And so it's a blessing to know that you were encouraged. Let me encourage you too, as we start this new year, as you think about resolutions and how you're going to be different, it's always on our heart to be healthy, of course, and do things. But let me encourage you, as we saw at First Timothy, we don't want to be the kind who spend more time in the gym than we spend in the Word. So make sure that your uh, godliness is profitable, Scripture says, for all things, not just in this life, but in the one to come. And so let me encourage you to do that. And if you have not started your yearly through the Word this year. Maybe you've never done that. Make this the year that you take uh, time in your quiet time to get through the Bible in a year. You can find out in the foyer uh, a trifold that can help you do that. If that's helpful to you, download the Version Bible app on your phone or your tablet. That has a number of, uh, of calendars that you can go through the Bible in a year. Let that blessing be yours as you grow and understand what the Word says. And he has, the Holy Spirit has one will. He reveals that to us in His words. let me encourage you to be in it. Before Christmas Eve, Sunday, we finished the section of Paul's letter concerning the care for widows. It was a very uh, broad instruction, of course, on that. Ministry of the church, correcting the church there in Ephesus where they had messed up and encouraging them on where they had got it right. And of course it made its way into a very broad study on really a legacy of faithfulness as we talked to our ladies and we see what things the Lord thinks are important. We understand that starts early on. You begin to have this pattern of faithfulness. So let me encourage you to catch up on that if you didn't catch any of that. And now our new section is going to take us into the last nine verses of chapter 5. Paul's going to give the church instruction on relating to elders. So that's what we've just entitled it, Relating to Elders, Guidelines for Public Worship. We've already studied the qualifications for those who lead the church from chapter 3. And now Paul's going to give instruction on how they are to relate to those who lead them. Uh, I'd like to jump right in to read our passage and then look at some introductory context. This is our habit, so we can have some sure footing as we begin this section, understand really what Paul would have Timothy understand for the church, is still just relevant for us because we're still in the church age. So look at verse 17, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we'll be reading out of the New American Standard. You can find that Bible around you in the pew, or just follow along in the one that you read and, and you memorize, and I'll give you verse cues. So we'll stay together. Verse 17 says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Verse 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. Verse 21 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Verse 24, verse 24. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after, verse 25, likewise also. Deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Let's stop right there. Clark Clifford, special counsel to Harry Truman, shares uh, this reminiscence of his former boss. Quote, every morning, he said, at 8.30, the president would have a staff meeting One day, the mail clerk brought in a lavender envelope with a regal wax seal and flowing purple ribbons. Opening it, the president found a letter from King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia, whose salutation began, quote, your magnificence. That uh, really caught Truman's uh, Truman's, uh, uh, funny bone. Your magnificence, he said, laughing. I like that. I don't know what you guys call me when I'm not here, but it's okay if you refer to me from now on as his magnificence. Truman subsequently sent a message to the United Nations supporting the admission of 100,000 Jews back into Israel's historic homeland. He was the first world leader to officially recognize Israel as a legitimate Jewish state on May 14, 1948, only 11 minutes after its creation. And to give you a little foreshadowing, perhaps, of what the previous letter from King of, uh, Saad had said, he received a second letter from Ibn Saud, and this one began, Dear Mr. President, respect, honor, they're fickle things in politics, as Truman experienced in, in his unusual presidency, first in the death of uh, Roosevelt in his fourth term as president, and later elected himself in 1948. But even in the midst of disrespect and honor, which is very common for any kind of leadership, where he was noted as saying to be president of the United States is to be lonely, very lonely at times of great decisions. And secondly, criticism is something a president gets every day, just like he gets breakfast, end quote. But in the midst of all that disrespect and dishonor, his most famous quote is, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. And so I think he understood that Along with leadership came disrespect, Along with leadership came dishonor, but still, I think, not honored it perhaps as he should have been in a presidency that had some high points. Even Jesus noted the the lack of respect that is connected with those who lead. In Matthew chapter thirteen, verse fifty four, Jesus has finished uh, teaching in parables. He comes back and to his hometown, and matthew thirteen fifty four says, began teaching them in the synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is is not his mother called Mary, his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus understood that lack of honor, the lack of respect. In the ministry of the church, we know who uh, gets the credit. We know who gets the respect. Of course, Jesus is the head working through the Holy Spirit who works through the ministry of the Word of God, and that can accomplish anything that's of any eternal consequence. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 Jesus is coming to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he talks about something very close to his heart. He says to his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's interesting, all these things that come back to his ear. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So again, disrespect, dishonor, and a failure to understand, even in the midst of all of his, everything he had to say, and the miracles that he did to verify who he was. Simon Peter answers and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He understood the true honor, the true sacrifice, the true glory, respect due to Jesus because the Holy Spirit made it clear to him and he was receptive of that understanding. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock of this truth that Peter just uttered, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's his church that is the fullness of his plan for this world. The church which is his body on earth, his hands and his feet. The church made possible, of course, by the work of Christ is designed to be the channel of the saving gospel to the world. And as we move into the acts of the apostles, we see the church is established everywhere. And leaders are appointed and then we move into the epistles and, and we see what the church is supposed to be like. First Peter chapter 1, uh, chapter 2 and verse 9. Peter says of the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The redeemed, the church, are to demonstrate the saving grace of God in Christ. To proclaim and model Jesus, just very, very simple. To be about the work of the kingdom, which primarily will include the Great Commission. And we know because we've looked at this in depth, at the time of the apostles and as it comes to an end, the Lord has seen fit to call godly men to lead and teach and protect his church. And as we looked in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he's very clear and non-negotiable on the qualifications for those who lead the church. And as we've seen, no church really rises higher than its leadership. And we know from the Word of God historically that he did this in the Old Testament as well. Charged men with the leadership of his people. And Hosea was given a message from God that summed that up pretty well. I'd like you to turn there if you would. We're going to be in the Word of God quite a bit today, so have it handy. Look at Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1. So if you're using a paper Bible, go to Psalms and turn right, nine books. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. And if your pages are sticking together right there, that's probably not a good sign. All right, open those up. One of only two northern kingdom prophets, that would be Hosea and Jonah. His ministry during this time was about 30 years before the overthrow of the northern kingdom by Assyria. So you understand a little bit of the context of who he's preaching to and their unreceptiveness. In verse 1, though, I think we get a pretty good idea of how the people are. He says this, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. These are people who are called by the Lord's name. These are people who would be identified as those that are God's. Verse 2, there is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Verse three, therefore the land mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Verse four, mark this, yet no one find fault and let none offer reproof. In other words, there's no discernment there. Nobody says, hey, this is the real reason why the land languishes. This is the reason why there's difficulty around us. It's because of sin. Nobody understands that. Nobody finds fault. And then he says this, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. In other words, they're always arguing with what they should do. The priest gives, uh, a godly priest gives what they should do. They don't want to do it. They argue about it and contend with it. And then he shifts gears and he says in verse 5, he says, So you will stumble by day and the prophet will also stumble with you by night. And I'll destroy your mother. And verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I'll also reject you from being my priest. Since you've forgotten the law of your God, I'll forget your children. Verse 7, the more they multiply, the more they sinned against me. I will charge their glory, change their glory into shame. Verse 8, they feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire towards their iniquity. And it will be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Verse 10, they will eat but not have enough. They'll play harlot but not increase because they've stopped giving heed to the Lord. Stop right there. Now, those are hard words to read. It talks about the wickedness of the people, but then it shifts the blame. Who does it shift the blame to? To those who guided them, supposedly to righteousness, but not to righteousness. The character of the people of God is in great measure dependent on the character of those who lead them. The Lord's desire for his people, Israel, was for them to be the set-apart ones, Under godly leadership so that they would be a witness for the Lord among the nations. That was a reason for him establishing Israel. But as we saw in Hosea, they in large part, except for a remnant, failed at that task. And so God has asked much the same for the church. And we know that God has given oversight of his church to under shepherds who are to lead it well, to help it accomplish the job they are to do. And the scriptures are pretty clear about that. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, he gave some apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, what for? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. He gives godly leaders to do a specific thing. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1, says much the same thing. Therefore, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but with eagerness, Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so the Lord has set up men to lead the church to do basically the same thing he set up men in the Old Testament to lead Israel to do. But the history of Israel shows the failure of the leaders of Israel. False prophets abounded, negating the message of the true prophets. Of course, it found willing ears amongst rebellious people who heard it. And the warnings that they gave and kings and leaders and people followed them, which led the nation to its destruction. Then after 70 years, they were able to return to the land. There's still this decline, though, because of the rejection of God's authority. And again, false prophets and corrupt spiritual leaders brought a message that God didn't give. Then you have 400 silent years where you don't hear from a prophet and then the Messiah comes and you get there and his biggest enemy as he did his ministry wasn't the unredeemed. Who was it? It was the religious leaders and false prophets. And so Jesus sets up his church and we get to the epistles and we see much of the same thing happening in the early church age, particularly in our current study. False teachers abound. Church leaders turning away from the qualifications and the standards and the instruction and sound doctrine. And this is what we've seen here in Paul's letter to Timothy as he pastors this established Ephesus church planted by Paul, but already far from where they should be. And the main problem here in Ephesus is an issue of leadership. And as the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and gives more guidelines for biblical eldership, namely how the church is to relate to them in a number of different scenarios, we're going to see as he gets to this point, we're going to see how the church is supposed to honor them, protect them, discipline them, and select them. And so really those are handholds as we get through these nine verses We're going to see how to honor, protect, discipline, and select. And as we've already seen, they've been placed in the church to serve the church as under shepherds underneath the great shepherd. And they're called pastors, they're called overseers, they're called elders, and they are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And as it has always been, many problems in the church as a whole can be tracked back to problems of leadership. False teachers are still working more and more. Uncalled or unqualified men are still in pulpits along with women. And so the church waxes and wanes depending on leadership. And so this is a recurring theme by the Holy Spirit for us to heed. So with all thoughts in mind, let's take a look at the first two verses. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 17. Paul writes to Timothy and says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the qualifications for overseers or elders were given to us in chapter 3. And it's as if he is speaking directly to us, because we're still in the church age. And in Ephesus, there was obviously a very serious problem among the leaders. It was obviously among those who were the elders of this church, a group of people teaching error and living ungodly lives, and therefore both in the word, in word rather, and in deed, they were saying the very opposite of what God wants his church to know. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, you'll remember in verse 3 how Paul reminds Timothy that there are some who were teaching other doctrine, and they're giving heed to fables, and endless genealogies, and they're concerned with questions rather than answers, and questions that have no redeeming virtue. They just want to argue about the minutiae, And there are some, verse 7 says, who want to teach the law, but they don't understand the law. And then you get to the end of chapter 1, and we looked at Paul having to put out two men by the names of Hamanas and Alexander, who no doubt were pastor elders in that church, and who, because they refused to change and were guilty of blasphemy, had to be turned over to Satan to learn not to do that. And the exception of chapter two is that women had stepped into the role of an elder and usurped that teaching position and were in need of being reminded that they were to learn in silence and not be permitted to teach or have authority over men in the church. And then we move to chapter three, and the qualifications for elders are given, and there's no part of that letter that's written in a vacuum. What I mean is, this is a list of qualifications for elders. And it's given against the background of men leading this church who needed to be tested and measured by that standard. And then in chapter 4, we see that there were actually false teachers who had likely come up from inside the membership. In fact that's precisely what Paul said would happen 30 years prior in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29 Paul takes his leave of the church and he says a number of things to them and they're weeping and they know that he's going to Jerusalem and likely going to his death but he says I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you so from the outside they won't recognize that these are not actually uh, uh, under shepherds these are wolves perhaps in sheep's clothing not sparing the flock And then verse 30, mark it, and from among your own selves, he says, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That's precisely what Paul's dealing with with Timothy right now. Therefore, he says, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. I told you this would happen. I taught you true doctrine. I led you through all of this and discipled you. Be aware. This is what's on the horizon. And so, in 1 Timothy 4.2, he had to call out these very men who had come up from inside and were teaching doctrines of demons, which we know from 2 Corinthians 11 in our study in that letter, come from actual demons. All false teaching comes as a result of demons and their teaching. And then from verses 6 to 16 in chapter 4, in light of what's going on, he reminds Timothy of where he's come from and the things that are most important for proper ministry. In the midst of all the chaos and bad teaching and bad leadership, and, Paul, and Timothy can get caught up in all of this stuff, he says to Timothy, until I come, just kind of draws Timothy's uh, his, his focus back here. He says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Do you remember what that is? It was an established pattern. What is it? To read the scripture and provide an exegesis so people could understand what it is. That's lost in today's modern churches. It's lost. People pick out a passage and then talk about whatever they want to talk about for the next 45 minutes. They're not exegeting that passage. But Paul says, give attention to the public reading of scripture. Timothy knows precisely what he's saying. And to exhortation. And to teaching. That's what you give your attention to. Don't get caught up in all of this other stuff. These types of pastors who are there, don't follow their lead. This is what you do. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. You are a called individual. And we were there when it all started. Don't forget, amongst these unqualified men, you are qualified. The Lord's put you in that spot. Take pains, he says, with these things. Be absorbed in them. How how much emphasis can he give? Focus on this. Give attention to it. Don't neglect spiritual gifts. Take pains with all of this. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Play close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Cycling back through again. What's most important? Your own testimony. Faithful teaching. Persevere in these things. Again, as... For as you do this, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. In contradistinction to what's going on right now in the church, see. So this instruction again comes, no doubt, because it's focused on, not in a vacuum, but on ministry that's actually going on in the church. A ministry in quotation marks. Not real ministry. And we'll see this as we get to chapter 6 and verse 3. It's going to talk about the attitude of the leaders who teach other than truth and how proud they are. And how they like to dispute with words and cause strife. And later we're going to see they're in the church for the money they can bilk out of it. And I was reminded of that very recently at a service I attended while I was out in Arizona with some friends. It was precisely what I thought that it would be a false teacher teaching. And in 35 minutes of sermon, one passage that he pulled out of context and didn't use, and then 21 times he mentioned funds, fundraising, or giving. It's all about the money. It's always about the money with false teachers. So all through these letters, we have examples of bad leadership and the results of that bad leadership. And so in Ephesus, if Timothy finds leadership then, and here's the switch. Because we've been talking about bad leaders all along and what they do and how to identify them. But here, Paul tells Timothy, if you find leadership that is in alignment with God's actual calling... And the life is aligned with the qualifications of chapter 3. That Timothy needs to know how to treat these men. And the church needs to know how to treat these men. And, and certainly this would be the easier part of this uh, task that the Lord has given Timothy. Certainly the harder part was having to correct or replace current leadership. That, that was the reason for the majority of Paul's admonishment here. So this is a much easier way and a much easier teaching to, okay, what do we do if we actually have men who are qualified in the pulpit? And so now we get to our section, and Paul is telling Timothy to pass on to the church how to relate to elders. So he says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. The two things that are most important. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, as you think about that and think about everything that we've just said in the context, it would be easy then based on the experience of this Ephesian church, to just paint every leader with the same brush. And that's how it is in the modern church a lot too. Based on perhaps your experience or your, your, your uh, uh, personal preferences. Uh, perhaps you've been hurt by someone. You've watched leadership blow up. You, you saw the church not deal with bad leadership or unqualified leadership. And so it's just easy to paint everybody with the same brush. They all have things to hide. They all got things back in the background. Everybody has a certain thing that they want to do. And it doesn't have anything to do with godliness and whatever. See, it's easy to paint everybody with the same brush. And that's precisely what Paul doesn't want Timothy to do. Did not pass the same sentence on everybody in church leadership. And so this passage then is going to take in what to do. Honor, guard, rebuke, and select. And these four things really shake out here in their importance for the New Testament church. And so we're going to attempt in context to properly understand what it says, what it means by what it says, and how that still applies to the New Testament church. Now, we just read that passage. You can see it on the screen behind me. Just as a footnote, and I've mentioned this to you before, and and this is a a disclaimer, if you will. It's the only one I'll do. But some passages are hard to teach. And if if you serve as an elder somewhere, if you teach the word regularly, you know this. And and really, there's more than three, but just three basically. Some passages are complicated and hard to understand. And so you have to spend a ton of time making sure you thoroughly understand the passage correctly and then present it in such a way so that they walk out not saying, I have no idea what he talked about, but instead saying, okay, I understand this. It was complicated, but I understand this, this uh, the, the heart of God here. I understand uh, the theology and the doctrine here, whatever it is. Sometimes uh, it's that way. Sometimes it's hard to teach because it could be embarrassing for the church. Maybe individuals think I'm talking specifically to them, or I know something about somebody, and this passage, as we get to it, is just right in their face, and that can be embarrassing, or it's a, it's a position the church is holding, and, and it's an ungodly position, and so you have to teach it, and that can be embarrassing for them and awkward. Or thirdly, it can be awkward or embarrassing for me to teach. And this first section would fall into category three. Part of the wonderful nature, though, of going verse by verse through each book of the Bible is that we're all going to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we're going to study things you may have never studied before, ever. And I know that's the case because over the years in ministry, many, many people have come to me after we close a sermon out or we close a series out and say, I have never heard anyone teach on that section of passage of scripture ever in my life. And for that benefit, I rejoice. I'm sorry for them that they never sat in a church in 30 or 40 years of Christianity that ever taught through all the scriptures so they would know it. But I'm also glad that they do know it now. Secondly, the Holy Spirit tends to take us through sections if we go exegetically verse by verse through the scripture that are appropriate for the time to benefit the church. In other words, the church is dealing with some question or some individual has some question in their life and we teach through it. It's exactly at the right time and it's very helpful for an individual. And so that's a great benefit of just going verse by verse through the word of God. But thirdly, after setting the example for the proper exegesis of the scripture, and this is where there's a lot of accountability on me, I can't realistically skip over a section just because it's awkward or embarrassing for me. Or you. Or because it's hard. And I can't treat it in a shallow or haphazard manner either. Because you're going to pick up on that and you're going to call me out and rightfully so. So notwithstanding, I feel a little bit awkward up here telling you that you need to honor elders of which I am one. Obviously, it could appear that uh, I am being self-serving. Or that... I am discontent in some way because this passage will have a lot to say that could be interpreted as me with a conflict of interest. So I just want to clear a few things up. We're going to teach through this. And I don't want you to read into anything like I'm asking for something because I'm not, okay? We're here because we're here. It could just as easily be awkward for you as it now is awkward for me. And nor do I secretly desire anything. I'm perfectly content with everything that you provide, and I'm grateful for it. And as I mentioned several weeks ago, my desire is really just to teach through the Word of God, and that's what we're going to do. That's my sole desire before the Lord. And before I come to church every single Saturday night, I wake up numerous times. I just ask the Lord, Lord, this is Your church. This is Your Word. I'm supposed to teach this Word to Your church, help them to go out knowing more about You, appreciating parts of Your nature, what You have to say to them, and respond in obedience. That's all I want. I don't have any vested interest other than that, to just discharge my ministry as faithfully as I can over the long haul. That's it. And I think every faithful Bible teacher, you think the same thing. That's that's all you want, the church to be benefited, for him to grow and, and, and be equipped for every good work. Paul said of himself and everyone who followed after, not as an apostle, of course, because there are no more apostles. But as those who serve in the church as elders, he said in 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says, Let a man regard us in, a, in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And, and that word um, stewards is the word oikonomos. That's a house manager. And the house manager, that's not an important job. Just somebody who makes sure everything's taken care of has to be faithful And hopefully that you know uh, after 14 plus years with you and many, many books later, it's my prayer every week that I'm going to take what's prepared in the kitchen. This is an illustration I used with you as we went through this letter and carry it to the table without spilling any of it. That's my desire. And doing this is my overriding goal and also my great dread that I won't do it correctly and fall under that condemnation in James of be not many teachers for theirs is the greater condemnation. So that's my disclaimer. And and although I'll still feel uncomfortable delivering it to you, I won't mention this again. Understand that from my heart, I've wrestled with this before the Lord. I'm completely content and love this church and have loved it all along. And I'm very grateful to be here. So I'm just gonna teach this because it's here, okay? And that's what we have to learn. And so all of us together can come out knowing more about the Word of God and how the church is supposed to function, okay? There it is. Now, here we are. We're at this part. And... Paul is not talking so much about the elder as he is talking to the church and how to relate to him, okay? That's the context. He directs the passage in a very straightforward manner. So he says this. He says, the elders, which is the word presbyteros. Uh, Here it's in the plural, which is the New Testament standard at the close of the apostolic era, a plurality of elders in each church. And we'll talk about more about that later. But here, the elders here serving the church, Presbyteros, is just simply speaking with spiritual maturity. Now, the word itself can mean an older man and sometimes is translated older man, but like the word deacon, which is translated servant, but is used as a, in a proper noun form because it's a position that's the same use here. So, it's someone who is spiritually mature. They may be young, they may be old, but in order to serve as one of the elder. Uh, The plurality of elders in the church, they have to be spiritually mature. And chapter three, Paul uses the word the office of overseer, episkopos, typically translated bishop, which just indicated that the office includes the labor of oversight, has to do with overseeing the church, of investigation, of inspection, of direction, to lead and instruct and deal with difficulty, coordinate, supervise, all the things that have to do with oversight. And we saw from our introduction that's the same thing as the office of elder, which we're looking at now. The Bible uses them interchangeably. Uh, we also see the word shepherd used of this position. Eno," is what it has to do with taking care of the flock. We saw 1 Peter 5 just a minute ago that uses the word shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God among you. It is an agrarian uh, illustration. It helps us understand what it means to, to take care of and to feed and, and to uh, make decisions and move the flock and treat injuries and watch out for them. It's translated by the word guardian sometimes. So it has that idea. And all these words refer to the same person. And as we've seen, the New Testament uses the term bishop, elder, presbyter interchangeably. And so this group of elders all have to qualify in all these things. And nowhere in the Bible do we see the church directing the elders. We see the elders directing the church. This is the pattern of the New Testament church. There is no other pattern. So in our passage in 1 Timothy 5.17, it takes in a number of the tasks given to these men. The elders who rule well, it says, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard market at preaching and teaching. That is the main job of those who are elders, to preach and teach. We've seen that over and over again. We know it's the main thing. We just got through reading the passage where Paul in chapter 4 says, give yourself to these things. It's the main thing you have to do. Those who serve as elders and pastors of overseers, it says, rule. It's just assumed that's what they're going to do. Elders are going to rule. And that is proisteme, perfect active participle. It's a verb. This is, this is the established, practiced pattern of the New Testament church. Elders rule. And this is the verb to be ranked first, to be set over. It is the pattern. But there's a qualifier here. All elders serve in the church and rule. Even the bad elders in Ephesus were serving over the church and ruling the church. But you have to do it well. See, there's the qualifier. And that's our Greek word, kalos. It's one that we've used many times. There's a number of words for good and for well in the New Testament. This one is particular. It certainly has to do with doing it correctly. In other words, discharging the duties in a way that there's no room to be called out. Doing it in a blameless manner. That's doing it well. Doing the job that you're supposed to do. All the things we just talked about and all the names that apply but it also has the idea, remember, of beauty attached to it. When it's done that way, when this is how the church operates, there's a beauty, an overriding beauty, that this is the pattern of the New Testament church. Now, I won't go through all this again, but back in chapter 3, we have that non-negotiable qualification list. In, and in chapter 4, we're able to look at the correct approach to evaluating a ministry. Because typically, the pastor is evaluated by all the wrong standards. We're going to figure out if he does it well, but then we're using a standard that the Bible doesn't have. So, in chapter 4, we saw what that standard looks like. So, if the church uses the right matrix then, and these elders are found to be doing it well, these elder pastors, Paul says, were to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard, he says, at preaching and teaching. And so, the first way, as you see up there, just obviously, that the church is to deal with a qualified elder is with honor. No matter how perhaps you may have experienced leadership in your past, uh, no matter how your preferences may be aligned with something persi- perhaps outside of what the scripture says, the requirements for an elder and the qualifications for an elder and the job he's supposed to do are, all of that aside, honor is the first way we're supposed to respond. First calls for honor to be given to a pastor or elder, in the church, those who serve the church, leading the church as it were, fathering the church by way of example and leadership and feeding and teaching in the church, are to be given honor. All those qualifications, they manifest those things because those are the same godly pattern for everybody. It's not a separate standard for those who stand in the pulpit and those who sit in the pews. It's the same standard for everybody, it's just those that lead the church have to hold those qualifications and they can't be able to be called out. And then that becomes the example for those who follow. And this teaching about honoring is not isolated to the pastoral letters. It's in other places as well. And those places help flesh out this principle for us. So we'll look at just a few of them in the time that we have. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul's talking to the church. Here's what he says. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, that's the verb to know, to know them, those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. So Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, those who are over you and the Lord, who work hard for you, who work hard among you, you should know them, you should love them, you should esteem them for the work that they render. Not unlike the passages we're looking at right now. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 and verse 17, we see much the same written to the church. The writer says, remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And then verse 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be, he says, unprofitable for you. So it starts out in verse 7, it says, call what they do to your mind. Make sure you evaluate what they're doing. And this is a very good sense Understand how they conducted themselves. Look at the outcome of their life. What do their children look like? How does their life conducted in the in 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 the area around them? See all those things out of First Timothy chapter three. You have to take a look at that. How does that work its way out? Call that to mind. Those who gave you direction. And that's the word for ruled over. Those who ruled over you. Love them. Esteem them. Know them. Remember their life. Follow their pattern. Obey them. Submit to them. All these things are in the imperative. And do this with all joy and not grief so that they can have joy. Because if they don't, then their ministry will be unprofitable to you. And their report to the great shepherd will be unprofitable to you. So, this command from 1 Timothy 4.17 is an isolated, see. Proper honor, proper respect to those who that are uh, over the church in the Lord is a common command. And there's other passages as we, as we work our through, through this section that we'll look at too that will help you understand that. Now, we're almost out of time. So, I want to wrap this up in a way that we can just open it back up next week and take right off with it. So I'm going to ask a question that's in everyone's mind and then answer that question with the word of God and use a number of places to do it so you'll know that we've got it right, okay? Because Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, you remember this, we've looked at it before, it talks about accurately handling the word of truth. And I've told you that's an idiom for making a straight cut. And really, if you're you're a craftsman, you understand this. You make a jig, so if you need a piece that's the same, maybe you need 15 pieces that are the same, you set up your saw so you can cut all 15 pieces exactly alike, okay? Or if you're a tile guy and you need, you know, 20 pieces of tile that are cut exactly the same, you set it up so you can just do it over and over again. That's the idea. The idea is this. If you're going to rightly handle the Word of God, then that means if you come to an understanding of what a word means in a certain place... And you pick that up and you take it over and you find the word somewhere else. You drop that meaning in. What are you going to have? It's going to work perfectly. See, that's what it means to rightly handle the word of truth. It doesn't mean one thing one place and something else some other place. There are some verb tenses and stuff that can change its application a little bit. But it's going to mean exactly what it means. And that's the point. So that's what I want to do here. Because there's a lot of discussion about what does that mean, double honor. And what does honor mean by itself. And so we're going to look at that. And in exegetical terms, if you come to the right interpretation of the word in one place, it should fit perfectly everywhere else. That's what we're going to do. So the question is, what does it mean to honor the elders who are qualified to do their jobs well according to a biblical matrix? What does that mean? Now, let's look at it. Honor is the Greek noun Time. It is used 43 times in the New Testament and 35 of those times it's used in terms of respect or regard. First Timothy chapter 6 verse 1, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of, mark it, all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. What does that mean? Well, it has great application in the biblical time. It could be someone who's a slave. It could be someone who's serving as a servant. It certainly has application today if you're employed by anyone and you're under them and you have to work for them someone who's employed by another, is to give their master or their employer what? Respect or high regard. You're supposed to respond that way. So keep that in mind, beloved. Wherever you work, whoever you work for, whether they're godly or ungodly, you're supposed to respond to them with honor and respect and regard. Because that makes the gospel look good. And we see that over and over again. It's, it's, as you will, Joseph under Potiphar, a wicked individual. Joseph, though, worked hard, the Bible says, so that Potiphar didn't even know where the bread on his table came from. He worked faithfully before the Lord. That's what we're to do. So pilfering and talking bad about your boss and, and uh, undercutting and working uh, less than you should, not giving eight hours of work for eight hours of pay. Listen, that doesn't make the, the gospel look good. That undermines the doctrine you say you believe. Don't be that person. Okay, so here particularly, though we understand the word, it's very clear, and it's very clear its application, so maybe that'll align you a little bit better with with your job, whether you like it or not. The Lord's provided it for you to provide for the needs of your needs and perhaps the needs of your family, and so that's what it means, to give the master or give an employer respect or high regard. Now, there's, there's at least 43 times in the New Testament that's used exactly like that. We won't look at all of them, obviously, for time's sake. But the other eight times the word TMA is used, and it has to do with money or remuneration. And you've already seen one of these, if you remember, all the way back in verse 3 when we spoke about widows. When Paul gave the instruction, he says, honor widows that are really widows. And what we saw there was inherent in the word honor, along with respect and high regard, obviously. It has the idea of financial support, remember? Because right away it said, let those who are children and grandchildren provide for the needs of, honor their mother or their grandmother if she is a true widow. There was a remuneration aspect of it and that really was the whole overriding passage. How is the church going to support monetarily those who are true widows and what does that look like? And we've looked at all of that so we won't go back through it. But I think you understand that. Honor widows that are really widows. And we saw inherent in that, along with respect and high regard, is financial support. It includes the area of remuneration. And, and even, we haven't even have an English word that we understand. And that word is the word honorarium, right? So if you go to speak somewhere, they may agree to honor you uh, by what you have to say, by giving you some money for saying it. And so we understand that. There's a number of passages, I think, that can make it clear for us uh, that part of it, that remuneration part. In Matthew 27, verse 6, the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said it's not lawful to put them in the temple treasury since it is, here's our word, Timae, price of blood. It has to do with money. Acts chapter 4, verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them, early church, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the, here's our word, teammate, proceeds of the sale. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, you've been bought with a, here's our word, teammate, price. What was that price? Sacrifice of Christ on a cross, right? Therefore glorify God in your body, which is the Lord's. And And we'll look and, and I want to look at this because it's been a while since we've been there in First Corinthians chapter nine, as Paul is talking to the church about being paid for what he does. I don't know if you remember that whole thing, and and there were a lot of people in Corinth who disrespected Paul, dishonored Paul, Paul understands what it's like to minister faithfully and be dishonored. He understands what it's like to be disrespected in a church where he's given uh, a huge time and of his life. But he's talking about that, and he says that he's not going to take pay even though it's right for them to give it to him. We're going to look at all that and get some uh, more context. We don't have time today. But I think you can easily see where Paul is going with all of this as we wrap up. If you have men who are qualified and their service is evaluated correctly and found solid, then they are worthy, Paul says, of, here it is, double honor. Literally twofold honor. Honor shown in two ways. And that's interesting because there are only two ways to interpret honor. So that fits pretty well. So what do you think it is? First one, respect. Because that's primarily what Paul is talking about. And that's where we see most of its application. And what's the second one? Remuneration. To be taken care of so that he can live and make his life and giving out the gospel to the church. So those two things are the ways Paul says, if you find guys and they are qualified and their service evaluated correctly and found solid and they work hard at their primary job of preaching and teaching, honor them in double honor. And that takes us to our stopping point. We'll pick up right there next week and that'll help us, I think, get off the ground. It's important, I think, to get our feel here. It's important to to uh, have a firm foundation. There's a lot of uh, bantering back and forth about what this means. I think it's pretty clear what it means. It's not hard to figure it out unless you really have an agenda. We're going to see you next week, Lord willing, that uh, Paul pulls from a passage we've looked at before to illustrate this command, the very next one in the passage, to show us what it means And why it's important. And we're going to look at that as well, Lord willing. But let's uh, be closed in a word of prayer, if you would, with me. As we just take this before the Lord. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you uh, that we can come and worship together. You're holy. Your name is holy. Your home is in heaven. We recognize that. We submit to it. And as as Jacob led us in musical worship, which is only part of the worship of our life. The worship of everything. We're supposed to worship you in everything we do. Uh, the way we manage our affairs before those who are in the public, the way we uh, submit to those who are uh, our employers, the way we manage our money, the the way we uh, conduct ourselves in obedience to your word. All those are forms of worship. It's submitting to you, saying to you, you are Lord. We will submit to you in everything. That's worship. So our musical worship, which we're so grateful for, is only a part of that. It's it's certainly... uh, naming your true names, telling about your attributes. We love that and we enjoy that together. It's very powerful for us and and, uh, cathartic and helps us get in the right frame of mind. But Father, we want to worship you with our lives all the time. And Father, we thank you too for uh, the fellowship of the saints here. We're grateful that we desire to be obedient believers. As a church, we we want to see what your word says and then allow it to work its way out. It's the only way we can grow. We don't grow because we've been a long time in church. We don't grow because we went to some great seminar. We don't grow because we heard some great speaker sometime. We grow because we know what your word says, what it means by what it says, but most importantly, how that applies to us and then doing it on a regular basis over and over. Taking in the right diet, exercising accordingly with using our spiritual gifts, that's growth. And Father, I pray we will be a church that grows. And Father, thank you for this, this uh, section of Scripture, however awkward it is for me to teach it and perhaps for them to hear. It is still powerful. It's still your word. It's still authoritative in the church. It's how we're to conduct ourselves. So help us, no, no matter where we've come from, and many, no doubt, sitting here and who will hear this sermon have been abused by false teachers. They have been led astray. They've been deceived, disappointed, and let down. No doubt. It's epidemic. So whatever that is and whatever those preconceived ideas that perhaps painting with a brush that everybody's like that, Father, I pray that you'll help them understand that is not the case. There are godly leaders who desire to walk and be faithful. They're not perfect. No man is perfect. But they desire to walk in holiness and they submit to the qualifications and they revere the word of God and teach it clearly. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us grow in that understanding, wherever our background might be. So for all these things and so many others as your Holy Spirit works, we know that uh, we can't even count the ways that you work through your word because it's preached, it's powerful, and it doesn't come back void. We give you praise, and we thank you. And we say all this in the name of Jesus, whom we love and serve and desire to see. And all God's people said, amen.